Mind Vine, a mental health podcast for everyone. Since our first episode in 2016, we have been sharing stories of recovery, engaging with experts, and tackling the stigma associated with mental illness. The Mind Vine podcast is produced by Ontario Shores Centre for Mental Health Sciences and is available on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Welcome to the Mindvine Podcast. My name is Daryl Mathers and I'm your host. And today we are talking uh, first responders in mental health. And our guest is a familiar face to Ontario Shores uh, in terms of sharing your story. This is Jeff Marchand, a firefighter. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Welcome. How are and you? I'm great. And uh, it's great to see you again. You, nice you, first, you first kind of came on our radar on Ontario Shores in terms of... Um, advocating for mental health when you participated in our annual report and shared your story. And today we're going to dig a little deeper into sure. your experience with mental health. But uh, first maybe talk us through your journey as a first responder and in particular becoming a firefighter. It started out when I was about 34. I was working construction and my wife saw an ad for volunteer firemen. And she thought, you might like this, you don't like to play hockey. And, uh, <laughs> Maybe you should go and try that. I was getting a little bored with my career. Anyways, I started volunteering. It was the greatest thing. I've always been a fan of community service. I, uh, I have a journeyman ticket as a heavy equipment mechanic and, and as a carpenter, so I have good solid skill set. And uh, it just was so much fun to be hanging out with guys that were like me. They, you know, they were like-minded, wanted to help their fellow man, serve their community, and had the same skill set. You know, you're clowning around about trucks and machines. And, mm-hmm. And burning buildings was all very exciting. So I, I did that for four years before I was hired. I went full-time at 39. I was probably, when I started volunteering, it was just to be a volunteer. It was my only intent. And then I sort of realized, like, the pension and the benefits and the, the options of... Uh, I didn't realize I could actually get hired as old as I was. So I started getting in shape and uh, studying and wound up getting hired by the city of Mississauga. I worked for them for... Uh, well, from 39 to 59, and I've been off for just over a year, so close to 20 years. Yeah. I know when we talked before, you know, you, you kind of hinted at it just now, uh, just how much you love firefighting. and uh, Oh, my God, it's the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. And the brotherhood, right? You talked yeah, about yeah. That, I mean, it's funny because that's the only thing I miss now. Like I say, I haven't worked for, it'll be, it's a year past April. Yeah. I, I miss the guys. I miss the guys a lot. Yeah. Um, I've found other ways to sort of serve the community, so I don't miss that part so much. I don't miss the calls, but I certainly do miss the guys. There's no camaraderie like it. There's no no career, no job. Uh, the you know they say family, and that's that's true. But uh, you're either it feels like you're either in or you're out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine there's too many things in life that replicate that without being fully immersed in it, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think the notion of, uh, you know, once you leave, you're, you're sort of gone. And I think it kind of has to be that way. Uh, you know, like it's a, it's a team that kind of work at the edge all the time. I don't think they know it when they're doing it, but, uh, but when you're not on the team anymore, you're not on the team. Uh, like the, you can't, I don't know if you use the fallen soldier analogy, but uh, they can't be wasting a whole lot of time moaning me. They have to go on and do what they do and look after the brother beside them. And, you know, I've chosen my own path to get my own help, and here I am. So, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I really miss that, but I, I understand why it has to be that way, right? You know, you're not if you use a hockey analogy, the, the, the stars play together, and they, they don't have a whole lot of time to go back to minor hockey to see how that's working <laughs> yeah. out, right? <laughs> so, you know, from there, I'm guessing when you started your firefighting career, you know, you may not have known too much about mental health or the impact, the journey that you'd, you'd eventually go on, but can you, you know, obviously we know that those type of jobs, you know, you're exposed yeah, to a, a tremendous amount of trauma. Uh, for you, your mental health journey, um, like when did it kind of come to the surface, and when did you well, realize that you know some things needed to be dealt funny, with? Funny, as a carpenter, I knew nothing about mental health. Uh, you know, you're 
hear stories that somebody takes a pill for depression, but yeah, I mean, I knew nothing of it, absolutely nothing. And uh, when I started volunteering, they had a, an open house for wives and family and anybody that really wanted to attend. But sort of the idea was it would be the person that was playing a supportive role to whoever was volunteering. And the, the captain or the chief, I guess it was the chief actually, that delivered the little speech, he said that uh, these guys will be changed forever. And uh, at the time, I was like maybe 34. And I looked at this guy, he's probably 60, and I just wrote it off as the mornings of an old man, right? Like, you know, don't smoke, don't drink, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff, right? And then, um, yeah, sure, you know, as a volunteer, you, you saw some horrible things. Um, not to the same rate as I did as a, as a full-timer, but certainly you saw them. And you realized the potential for for it to affect you, but, you know, I was young and enthusiastic and I just sort of ignored it. And then again, when I was hired as a professional, the uh, chief at the time, Gary Morton, he said in his speech in front of all the family, I, th I think if I remember correctly, he says in, in the next 14 days, that would be the time it would take to deploy all the new recruits. He says over the next 14 days, all of these men will be changed forever. And. Uh, and again, I dismissed it as the warnings of an old man. Mm -hmm. And um, then you just sort of, you, then, then you're a firefighter. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it just becomes its own thing. You, you, you don't know, I mean, at the time we didn't speak much about mental health. I mean, when I was in uh, recruit class both times as a volunteer and as a professional, they had uh, uh, the regional police department brought in this, what they called the carousel of carnage. And it was a slideshow of, just about you know every way there was to die, and I mean basically I, we were exposed to that, yeah. and uh, that was the extent of mental health training. Right? Yeah. Uh, we were told, you know, watch your drinking, but then at the same time we were also told like go out and drink with your guys because <laughs> yeah. because the camaraderie. The, that's how yeah, you build that camaraderie. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of the fire hall life at that time. Well, not the fire hall life. The fire hall is obviously a very sober place, but a lot of the culture was was that we were partying and we were big loud people and uh you know quote unquote testosterone field monsters yeah. but uh you you wind up at least in my case i can't speak it's not fair for me to say that of everyone there are people that have healthier outlets and they're now with younger people they're so much more aware of mental health but i didn't i, I just thought i was a hard partying guy yeah. and uh and it just went on for years and years and years and then uh then you realize like this just isn't right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the uh, the shift rotation winds up where most of the shift you're working one day on, two days off. So I used to joke you spend a day getting over it and a day getting ready for it. Mm -hmm. And uh, and for me, I, I mean, I've been single for about twelve years. So the fire department became the thing. It it was my life. I loved it. I taught it on the side. I passed for passed on promotion so that I think I wrote once and I did poorly on it and I never bothered studying again because I loved the squad I was on a squad and it was great there was no and the guys in my crew were my family if I wrote for promotion I'd leave them you know I'd go off to some other hall and I'd be doing a job I didn't like maybe you know just putting out fires instead of going to car accidents and tech rescue training I didn't want to do that and like I say the guys were so close so they sort of become your family, and then you realize now you are completely immersed in the fire department. Mm -hmm. And then when I was home, like I said, I'd just be waiting to go, <laughs> waiting to go back. And you fill that void with, uh, well, I stay busy. I mean, I've always been busy, but but I was, truthfully, I was filling the void with women in the bottle was my, mm -hmm. my big weakness. And, what were some of the, like, whether it's symptoms or some things that happened that really, that made you realize that, <clears throat> You know, what you're, the way you're coping, the way you're coping. is not, you know, it's not going to work for you. Like what? Well, it's funny because uh, one thing I didn't do was, you know, I come from a, you know, I don't know how to say it without sounding snobby, but I'm, you know, well raised and well brought up. And I certainly didn't want anyone to know that I was having an alcohol problem. And uh, I loved being that guy. Uh, you know, you show up at a party and, you know, I always had a different pretty girl and I always had a bottle and I was always buying. Mm. And, uh, but nobody saw me on the, the weeknights at home drunk in my hot tub. You know, mm. I, I was, and I didn't really want to give it up because that had become my persona. That that was 
the other side of me. And uh, I remember driving to work a few times where I, where I realized like I drank more on the shifts before I was going to work than I did on the shifts that I wasn't at work. Mm -hmm. And I think, that's kind of odd. And then you realize you're kind of hang hung over, right? And the guys would ask me, are you all right? A few little things, like I remember showing up with a black eye and I didn't know I had a black eye because I just rolled out of bed and got to fire off. Start shaving, I come up with a black eye. Or I went to walk into the kitchen and I said, where'd you get the black eye out? No idea. Um, those kind of things, like they're not, uh, in and of themselves, they're not particularly bad, right? Like uh, in, in, in that kind of a workplace or say a construction environment, you get a guy that shows up like that every now and again, it's all a good laugh, yeah. right? But it becomes a, a lifestyle, right? Yeah. And it's, when it becomes a lifestyle, the guys, like they don't know what to do. They'll ask you, are you okay? And you say, sure, yeah, I'm fine. And we're not trained mental health workers in any way. So I would always ask her, yeah, I'm fine. Mm. Just a little hungover today or, you know, you should have seen the girl I met last night or, mm. you know, that kind of thing. It was, always, it was always kind of brushed off as just Jeff being Jeff. And then, um, few times I started to cry on my way to work and I just couldn't get this loop out of my head and the loop that played over and over and over again so I started drinking more because when uh, when you drink you don't dream yeah. you also don't sleep <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and uh, when I really when my body started to really break down I'd take uh, NyQuil yeah. so I could sleep but then I was mixing NyQuil and alcohol together and that doesn't really work out all that well anyways finally I went to my um, it's a funny story. I wound up on the beach in Pickering with a really nice girl who taught paddleboard lessons. And uh, I took her to dinner and I went back to her place and I stayed there for four days. She was the kind of person that looks after, she rescued dogs. <laughs> and uh, it was the first time I felt peace in the longest time. And I didn't even know that I wasn't at peace. It's a really, really hard thing to explain. I mean, I literally just went to meet to go for a paddleboard lesson and wound up meeting my paddleboard instructor and for some reason feeling comfortable and I stayed there for four days. So uh, I've since thanked her. I, 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 I sort of never saw her again for about a year and a half. And then once I realized I'd gotten some help, I, uh, I thanked her for taking care of me. She said, yeah, I know I take care of things, right? <laughs> but uh, the, the, the other part of that story that's, you know, comical in a way, but so firefighter really, like I phoned from her driveway, I phoned our critical incident guy. I said, I think I'm melting down, man. I said, I haven't been to work. I haven't called in sick. I, I just don't want to go back. <laughs> Sorry, it's kind of a mixed emotions. It's funny and it's sad in the same way. But he said, uh, so let me get this. He says, you're on the beach in Pickering in a little house with a pretty girl and four puppies. <laughs> when do you want us to come and rescue you? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, from there, uh, I went through my EAP, mm -hmm. which is sort of how they the, how it works. Like we have critical incident guys on the job, um, and I can't speak to how it is now. Like I said, I've been gone for a year. I know they were making progress, but at the time, you know, if you came back from something bad, the district chief would call and say, you know, do you guys need anything? And, and of course, it would all be up to sort of the toughest guy in the room, quote unquote tough. And the general answer was, no, we're fine, right? So the next step in the process is to use your EAP, right? Their employee assistance yeah. program, and ours is through uh, Moore and Chappelle. So I called them, and I spoke with a girl, uh, got some really good coping skills. She uh, helped me with the alcohol a little bit, helped me with the PTSD a little bit, helped me sort out my life a little bit. I had been on a little bit of a party bender, and I... I said, like, I'm broke and I have, uh, I've, I've ruined this relationship. And anyway, she just sort of prioritized things. It turns out I wasn't broke. I just hadn't paid my visa. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, she helped me out with those things and kind of just kind of cleared the air a little bit. Mm. And then I started on the EAP. And I think I did that for maybe 12 weeks and it, it worked out well. Mm. Uh, the city was good to me. I took uh, sick time, told them what I was up to, uh, got a letter from my doctor. The family doctor was very good. And, there was no suggestion at the time of WSW. It was just get the help you need and come back. So when I came back, uh, the guys were more than supportive. I was only gone for, I don't know, I probably didn't miss more than four shifts. Yeah. 
I went four years and I was doing pretty good. At least I thought I was doing pretty good. And then of all things, I, I fell in love. And uh, I let someone close to me. And normally I don't do that. And in that time, that somebody realized pretty quickly that there's something wrong with you. Like, normal people don't drink that much. Normal people are able to sleep all night. And, uh, and that was sort of the beginning of my unraveling. So I, I, I had taken some time off, and the family doctor had suggested, uh, suggested that I talk to a psychiatrist. And I said, yeah, sure. But things were busy. Like, it was uh, middle of COVID, and everything was crazy. So I went back to work without talking to the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist is from, from Ontario Shores. He called me about four months later, and I said, listen, I'm just talking to you out of professional respect. I, I've seen my family doctor, and I've been back to EAP, and you know, I, I'm feeling really good. I've been back on the job for four months. Everything's great. And he talked to me for a little while, and I think within 20 minutes, he had me crying like a child in front of his computer. And he says, man, he said, you're not all right. <laughs> he says, you're not all right. You, you need to be in our program. Excuse me. Um, it was the first time that anyone actually looked at me and knew that I wasn't all right, that could see past the party and see past the, the boats and the girls and the booze and, the, and the, the energy. I've got endless amounts of energy, like you know, I'll, I'll build houses in my spare time just to keep busy, <laughs> build boats and roll them all over the place. I'm a very busy guy, but I've never, I've been years since I'd known peace since I'd actually just sat down and patted a dog or, you know, that little scene at the beach was a real reminder to me that something is very wrong. Anyways, uh, Ontario Shores picked up the ball within, I think it was within two weeks. It was just amazing. Um, I mean, maybe it was just good luck, but I think maybe it was like showing up in the emergency room while you're having a heart attack. Like, they're gonna take care of you. And uh, yeah, they picked up the ball right away. And uh, I started the program, I believe last May. I st uh, well, I was diagnosed officially on April 22nd from uh, having PTSD and an alcohol problem. Uh, there was some lag in the WSIB paperwork, but that's just administrative stuff that doesn't really matter to me, but... Uh, I burned up some, all my sick days and then a few days of vacation and then then uh, WSIB and the union and everything got all their paperwork sorted out and it was all sort of refunded back to me. I, I don't know how that actually mm. works, but there was a, when I got the letter from, uh, from WSIB and uh, sort of the city's response, like I had to fill out, uh, this is important, I had to fill out incident reports, um, exposure reports. Uh, you're probably gonna have to edit this. Maybe somehow make it go backwards. But when we when we were uh, new, uh, an exposure was if you somehow wound up with your face piece off and you got a big breath of gas and mm. some kind of smoke, or or if you got chlorine on you or gasoline on your skin, or you were exposed to something that they thought might long term be harmful to you. Mm. So you'd fill it out, and the idea was that you'd have this documentation. You know, 20 years later, if you got lung cancer or stomach cancer or whatever, you'd you know, your exposures documented. About halfway through my career, they started suggesting we diag um, sorry, diagnose, sorry, document um, uh, traumatic exposures. I don't think I ever did that once, right? So when I, uh, when I went off, the association asked me to fill out an exposure report. So I wrote down the 33 things that had go in my head. There were 33 continuous loops that just wouldn't stop playing. And uh, you don't really think about it at the time, but you know, in 20 years, if you deal with one fatality a month, that's 240 dead people. Uh -huh. wow. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot. And, and I'm sure the number's higher than that because once a month doesn't seem like quite enough. But anyways, um, when I got the letter from WSIB and uh, confirmation from the city that the day all were on the same page, it, it almost felt like, not like a badge of honor, that wouldn't be quite right, because you still feel weak, 
you still feel that there's guys on the job that are tougher than you and better than you. And I mean, we're a competitive lot. Like yeah. we didn't get the job without being tough and yeah. smart, right? But I felt I had earned it. I I know I worked hard. I gave it all. I uh, I, I I was on the pointy end of the stick for a long time, and I really feel I gave it all. And uh, yeah, sure, you know, I look back. And there were times when I was hungover, but my head was always in the game. Like when the medal hit the meet, I was I was there. Yeah. And yeah, there's, there's going to be guys that'll watch this and say, but Jeff, you never once filled out a form. I said, yeah, that's right. I didn't do much paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the long and the short of it, yeah, I, I felt that I'd earned it. And then uh, Ontario Shores helped me recognize that, um, that you, you hurt yourself. And that was the hardest thing. Like, I've always been a strong guy. Like, I'm, I'm 59. I just finished sailing and rowing. 300 kilometers last week. I've, I feel fantastic. Yeah. But uh, every now and again, you pull something, right? Yeah. And uh, I got something wrong in my hip. It's never going to be the same. I don't know why. This is the same thing. I, I, I pulled part of my brain. I just lifted too much, too many times. And it hurts. And there's guys on the job that have, lots of guys, uh, my district chief loves to use expression, and it's quite true. He said, we send home a lot of guys, a lot more guys with broken minds than broken backs. But we don't talk about that. In the fire hall, if you have a bad back, you can tell them what disc you herniated. And guys will say, oh, you speak to my surgeon. Well, your hips worn out? Oh, your shoulders? Yeah, the guy who works for the NBA, he, he did mine. Talk about mental health? Yeah. <laughs> Come on, buddy, I'll buy you a drink, right? Mm -hmm. And no one says you should see my psychiatrist, which is, I guess, why I'm here. Like if I had anything to say, it would be like, you got to use my guy. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, Ontario Shores has been very, very good to me. The, uh, the program was, uh, it ran from May to February. Uh, I did it with Sarah. I did it by Zoom. I've never met her, very lovely woman. And we just chatted away, but it, you know, it, it follows a curriculum. It's a well, studied research design program. I had homework to do and rules. I wasn't allowed to drink um, before and after my homework. Uh, one day I was particularly anxious and I fired up a cigarette on my back porch and she told me I wasn't allowed to smoke during the meeting. I said, but sir, it's my backyard. <laughs> she says, no, you're not allowed. Okay. <laughs> but it, it, it has structure. And uh, the other thing that was really, really hugely beneficial uh, more beneficial than I care to admit, because again, the alcohol thing is, I kept it out of the closet for so long, I don't like to out myself too badly, but uh, she ran a concurrent alcohol program. So the alcohol program was on Wednesdays uh, for an hour, and Sarah was for uh, an hour on Fridays. Hmm. And the alcohol program was uh, not an abstinence program, it was quote unquote changing my relationship with the bottle. And uh, Last May, my daily allowance was uh, six tall boys, four coolers, and a half a bottle of wine. Mm -hmm. And the improvement was that they took the rye out. <laughs> so I got to drink that much every day. And uh, now I look back and I think, I got to drink that. I couldn't drink that much every day if I had to now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a couple of beers and I'm good, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And, and basically, that, that program just starts cleaning your house a little bit. Like, you stop drinking and then you start thinking and then you start reading and writing and doing homework and... Uh, and uh, recognizing probably the biggest thing I got out of it was uh, one of the lines I remember the most is uh, possible versus probable. Like I used to see accidents everywhere, everywhere I went. I, I couldn't go out in public. I was so afraid that I was going to have to deal with something like there was going to be a heart attack, a car accident. I was going to have one. It just, just sort of this overwhelming fear of the whole world. I, I live in a small town, my son's close to me, and the girl I was uh, seeing there, she was aware of the problem, so she stayed very close to me, and I just lived in my own little bubble for nearly a year. Mm. <laughs> you know, now I can go out and do things and see places. Still a lot of things I won't do, like, I'm not a big crowd person, I, maybe I never was. I, you know, it's hard to say what's PTSD and what's not, but. I mean, I used to break into tears hearing different songs in a supermarket. I mean, that's not manageable at all, yeah. right? And uh, I would say probably my biggest regret is not getting help earlier. Um, 
And I think anybody with any medical condition would say the same, right? Uh, the guys that, uh, oh, wait a minute, I'm one of those guys too. The guys that have a sore hip and ignore it until they can't walk. Yeah. They wish they'd gone for physio. Well, even you talk about like cancer and other critical illnesses, right? The earlier you catch it, the better it is. Oh, absolutely. It's right. It would be no different for, for something like PTSD. I wonder when you talk about, um, you know, kind of your life now and, you know, you talk about a year plus, uh, you know, that you've kind of been more in tune with your, with, with your mental health. How has your life improved? Like, are you able to, like, you know, you talked about your shift before, like coming off shift and then recovering from that and then spending the next day getting ready for your next shift. You know, you don't, you're, that's not something you're dealing with right now in terms of yeah, yeah. Uh, working the job, but, um, in terms of enjoying your life, where are you, do you have the you ability know, the, to enjoy it a little bit more? I do very much so. I, w- I would suggest, and it sounds absolutely crazy, but I'm going to say it the way it feels to me. If you've never gone to bed sober, you really should try it. <laughs> like, you know, it'd been years and years and years since I'd gone to bed sober. Uh, and sobriety is a, is a giant, giant thing. I'm not going to suggest that I'm not happy about the treatment for the PTSD, but I couldn't have done it without sobriety. And, uh, and if you're interested, there are people, everyone's worried about sobriety because they think you're going to have to quit drinking forever, and you don't. Uh, there are ways to do it. Mm-hmm. Ontario Shores will teach you how. Um, but a lot of people don't want to get help because they don't want to change who they are. Mm-hmm. And uh, how, yeah, how am I now? Yeah, so that you realize that those uh, possible versus probable, uh, it's possible. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not possible your head's going to pop off right now. That's even less probable, right? When mm-hmm. I'm driving home, oh, I just drove 4,000 kilometers in my truck. I couldn't have done that last summer. Mm-hmm. I. Uh, would have thought in 4,000 miles, you're gonna have a, you're gonna have an accident. I've got five or six car accidents a day. Mm-hmm. How can I possibly be exempt? Yeah. <laughs> you know, your, your, uh, your, your, your thought process changes. Uh, you, you literally start, well, they call it hypervigilance. Uh, it has a name. It has symptoms. Uh, I never, I used to have trouble speaking sometimes. Um, you wouldn't know now. He goes on and on and on. But, uh, I learned that people that are hypervigilant often lose the ability for speech because that part of their brain is busy being hypervigilant. Mm-hmm. It was amazing to me. Mm-hmm. I told my son, he says, yeah, I wondered about that. You've been stuttering for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, just amazing little things. And the summation of all those little things is relative peace. Mm-hmm. I can sit and read a book now. I used to read all the time. One of my... Um, one of my mother's, I guess, you know, your family know you. Well, one of the things my mother mentioned is you stopped reading. She says, I knew that there was some, something wasn't right when you stopped reading. I haven't seen you read a book in years. Yeah. And I used to read a lot. Yeah. And, and now I read again. Yeah. Um, I know that sounds crazy, but being able to sit still sober long enough to read is... Uh, no, sound, no I, it's a, it actually makes a lot of sense when your mind is just constantly... You know, you talk about that loop and yeah. not being able to settle and yeah. concentrate long enough. And, and it's kind of a two-edged sword. It's either the loop is making you crazy or you're making yourself crazy trying to get out of the loop. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that that's a hard thing to explain. Um, I think it's also hard to explain to the guys on the job. And if I could say anything to them is that, is that you can. I... I'd, I think if I had any regrets about trying to be a spokesman for mental health is that it's, it's very unlikely that I'll return to the job. My natural uh, retirement is this February. It doesn't appear that WSIB are going to let me go back. But I believe that if I continued on this path or I had got help earlier, I could go back to work. So I think one of the big fears in, in guys going out to get help is that A, they're going to be ridiculed by their peers, which has never happened to me. Um, I may not be as close to the guys as I was, but no one has ever said anything negative about me getting help. In fact, it's all been good on you, Jeff. Uh, you've earned this. Uh, it's, the, the guys have been very, very supportive. I would imagine, not to cut you off, but I would no, imagine please. for some of your, you know, your brothers and the brothers and sisters in the fire in, in your crew, them you sharing their story, some of the things that you've probably done over the years probably makes more sense to them. 
Oh yeah. Right? Like some yeah. of the things that you describe, right? It's well, like that's sort of my hope, right? Yeah. Like you know, we can't do this entirely from the outside, right? It's I mean, it took the military years and years and years where they, they called it shell shock, obviously, yeah. right? We have to do it from the inside. From the inside we have to speak to each other first and then come to you and say, This is what we need yeah. which I think is why I'm here. Mm-hmm. Right? Um but yeah, to further the point, like I I think if I was a younger man and I had got help earlier, I would be able to go back. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that held me back from getting help was the fear of losing my job, the fear of not being a firefighter, um, which is a huge thing, right? Yeah. Like it's your identity, right? I it think is. That, I think that's Absolutely. one of the things. Absolutely. You tattoo it. Yeah. You, well, it's uh, you know, there's certain professions where you know you go to a party you're introduced as a firefighter almost right away. Almost right away, right? yeah. And it same is with your police officer yeah, and others, yeah. right? So it's so ingrained in who you are, yeah. and then you lose the threat the, of losing that, right? That's the old joke, you know, you're standing next to a firefighter? Mm. Don't worry, he'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but it's true, it, becomes, it does become such a big part of your persona. And and you know what? The, I don't know if, if the public would appreciate it, but no firemen do, at least, good firefighters do. You have a skill set that's really good. I mean, we're really well trained. Um, I was on a hazmat tech rescue squad for we could find space and trench and hazmat and at one point rope rescue as well. We trained a lot. We were really skilled. Our medical skills are good. Our firefighting skills are good. So you have a set of skills. You're getting paid by the public. You kind of, and, you, and, you, and you're that guy in the first place. Like you, you signed up to help people. You kind of feel you're wasting that skill set when you're not on the job. Yeah. And partly through the mythology of being a firefighter, I mean, you're there to save lives. And every day you're not doing that, or the, when you're too weak to do that, or your head is too messed up, or you're not sober, you do feel like you're letting down your team, right? Um, that the other guys on the squad, well, I'm not there today. Ooh, what if something bad happens, right? So you, you have a commitment to the job that you've earned, you've worked hard for it, um, and you almost feel you owe your employer and the city and the guys something, right? Um, I suppose the analogy is that, you know, it sounds, it sounds like just another meme, but it's true. We're in a profession where someone will hand you their child and say, here, make their life better, yeah. right? And that could be in the stairwell of a burning building, can you get my child out? Or my child is blue, can you make them alive? Uh, there's no questions asked. That that trust in you is absolutely unequivocal. And you owe the public that. So, so why would you ever go and get help and stop doing that? Like, it's, it's a really hard thing to recognize that you're not well. <laughs> I know, I, and... and and to be willing to, in your mind, like sacrifice uh, what you love to do yeah, in yeah. order to put your like. We had the police officer on uh, talking about his experience with PTSD a couple episodes ago, and we used like the team sport uh, kind of environment as a comparison, right? Like you're you're in this environment with uh, you know with your crew and your the people you go to and battle with, so to speak, every day. Yeah, yeah. And it's not necessarily the environment where. <clears throat> you're supposed to put yourself first, right? You never put yourself no, first, right? No, you're not supposed to, no. You know, you're not no. supposed to, but in this situation, when your health deteriorates, you need to start making it a priority, and that must be a big change for people, or a big challenge for people to overcome, is putting their own health ahead it's, of... It's a huge challenge. Um, I see a psychiatrist now that's um, mandated by WSIB. I see them every Friday. And uh, he used the analogy that it... If you break your back or or, or pull your back lifting rocks for your employer, you say, almost, woohoo, WSIB covered me. I never really liked lifting rocks anyways, Mm. right? Now I can go and, I don't know, be a librarian. They're going to train me and everything. We don't go and get help because we really, really like our jobs. Mm. You use the police analogy. I remember years ago, the biggest fear of cop friends of mine of getting help was to lose their gun, Mm. to be assigned to a desk, to to be in, you know, B-string. Yeah. You don't want to be that. You, you A, you love the job, 
B, you have a responsibility to your community, you have a skill set that, that you don't want to give up. And yeah, I think we delay getting help for a long, long time. I mean, I sometimes wish I was that guy that lifted rocks and yeah. just say, great, I don't like lifting rocks, then tell me my back's shot and I'll yeah. stop doing it. Right? Yeah. It's, it's definitely a, definitely a, a different way of thinking uh, that, that postpones you from getting help. Yeah, and it might help people, you know, putting in that context might help people to understand why first responders maybe are slow to get help. It's because they absolutely, not everybody loves what they do. And in those professions, most people you know, love what they do and it's a huge part of their identity. I, I know, you know we talk about first responder world, in particular firefighters and mental health in your time or maybe just in the time you've been off. Have you noticed um, maybe a bit more open conversation about mental health or maybe people that you weren't yeah, being you know, curious? Um, a friend of mine plays in a band that, with the Masonic Lodge that supports the Wounded Warriors. So I've been out a number of times to Wounded Warriors event, not because I was one, because well, I'm not one of you guys. Mm. <laughs> but uh, the last event I went to, I got talking to the guys, and it was the first time that I ever spoke about actually being there for something other than just supporting my buddy in the band. And, and you know, they're they're big, solid guys. Uh, and I know no difference to the, the girls on the job, but you... You have your persona and you think that, oh, I'm a big guy, right? Then you meet some other big guy that's got this therapy puppy in a bag and you think, what are you doing, man? Yeah. Like, well, this is my dog, you know, when I was in Libya, it was terrible. And all of a sudden you realize, like, there's other guys like me. Yeah. There's other, there's, there's, there's women on the job that, you know, that are getting help. And, and there are more people. Um, it's much, yeah, there's a lot more open to it. Uh, if I was to have a concern about it, I mean, this is an entirely personally my concern. I want to get healthy uh, and I'm well on the way to being there. I want to help others get healthy, but I don't want it to, to be ever my identity. Um, like, oh, you're the firefighter. I don't want to be a poster boy for PTSD. That's sort of my point. Uh, and I don't think you have to be. I don't think you need to join a club of PTSD survivors. I think you're welcome to, if you like, but it's a little bit like uh, maybe AA. You know, you find like-minded people whose company you enjoy, and that's great, but it doesn't define you. You don't have to be, like I'm no more, uh, like no one knows of me as the famous skateboarder that broke my arm at 52. <laughs> I'm not famous anyways, but I, you know, I was yeah. trying to be, but like no one remembers that. I just broke my arm, I got it fixed. So, you know, it doesn't go straight anymore, but that's okay, it is with my father. I feel the same way about PTSD. I would love for more people to get help. I'd love for more people to recognize the injury and I'd be happy to talk to anybody and, and help them through it. But I think it's also important that they recognize that, like any other health thing, what you're trying to do is get back healthy and then go back to the quote-unquote normal world. Um, I spend some time supporting a group of breast cancer survivors. They paddle uh, uh, together, the uh, dragons of breast, they paddle dragon boats. And, you know, they're a great bunch of women. They all met through uh, breast cancer and they support, you know, other women that are going through that. But they don't identify as breast cancer survivors. They identify as dragon motors, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's really cool. I, uh, I think that there's a, that, that one of the best ways to get rid of the labels is to recognize that I suffer from this, but I'm still one of you, right? Um, you, you know, you've seen the meme where everyone has a t-shirt that says what they suffer from, whether it's depression or anxiety or alcoholism or schizophrenia, but we're all together. Right? Uh, get the help you need. Uh, deal with your issues and get support from you know guys like me and guys like the Wounded Warriors that want to help you, and then in integrate back into the world. And like you know, you and I can be good friends. It doesn't matter that I have PTSD for PTSD. I don't have to hang out with other PTSD people. Um, you got to find what works for you, right? Yeah, like, yeah, oh, and I guess that's sort of my point. Like, there's there's lots and lots of support out there, and it is more open and it's more talked about, and uh, and it's okay. Uh, the notions now, like the firefighter, like you see, you go to a house party and everyone uh, 
uh, so oh, he's a firefighter. But people are now willing to say, oh my God, you must have heard some horrible things. Um, people now recognize, them, you know, one of the first worst things you can say to a firefighter is, tell me the worst thing you've ever seen. The worst thing I've ever seen is something you can't even begin to imagine. And, you, and the city hired me to protect you from that. I'm not going to tell you about it, right? That's part of our job. So you don't have to see that, right? People are recognizing that that's not a cool thing to say anymore. The, the thing you say is, oh my God, you must have seen a lot of or thanks for your service, or nothing at all, right? <laughs> you know, also, is, is it true an American France is really a Mac? No, yeah. that's not true, right? right? Yeah. You know, uh, those kind of things. Um, you know, ask me about trucks or ask me about the most rewarding call I've had. You know, sure, you know, literally saved a couple of babies. That's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, people are recognizing that. We're doing the same for cops, too. We're recognizing that when a cop walks into the room, don't ask him about your ticket, because he might be working on a, on a pedophilia case or check fraud, or, you know, we're not all the same, and we're not identified by those things, yeah. right? Um, I was surprised to learn in this process that only about 10% of soldiers that ever go overseas see combat. And, you know, we brush them all in soldier, right? Yeah. Like, you know, everyone's doing something different. We're all, we're all doing something different. And the commonality is, is our condition, right? So. You mentioned earlier on just about uh, when you were a volunteer firefighter and then becoming a professional, uh, you know, these men are going to be changed in the next 14 days, right? The you know, advice that you got yeah, on yeah. Uh, your recruitment ceremony. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, you sitting where you are today, you know, you if you were delivering that kind of message to recruits, knowing what you know, you know, what advice would you give them? <laughs> yeah, I think about that a lot, actually. I would give them the exact same advice. And then I would look them in the eye and I'd say, and don't forget, don't think that I am an old man. <laughs> make, don't make the same mistake I did. Like, there's a reason you get advice from old men, right? Uh, if someone was to ask me about a, making a hall system for confined space, they would listen closely because I'm 59 years old and I'm a freaking expert at that. But if I was to say, watch the bottle, young man, and watch being that guy with, you know, you got two hotties at your recruit grant, you know, I can see you. I can see you right here, right now. You're that guy. You're me 22 years ago. Um, I would say the same thing. I would say, it's going to change you, and I would say, watch for those changes. And I think, and I think we're getting there. Like you know, it doesn't do any good in a in a recruit class graduation when there's everyone in their uniforms and, and their parents and their children. And well, I guess I was the only one with kids. Most of you are younger, right? But anyway, when you're at that moment, you're at a party. That's not the time and place to say this is going to change you forever. I mean, I get it, hmm. but it shouldn't be such a trivial little add-on. It should be a whole day in recruit class. It should be, this is what's going to happen to you. Um, and this is how you have to this manage is how you and take care of yourself. Yeah, I mean, we, we went running and, and working out every day in recruit class. There was always a physical workout, right? And I'm not one for saying, you know, you need to be singing in a circle of kumbaya every morning getting your piece together I, I don't know that I entirely buy that I mean there are elements of us that are warriors but we have to talk about mental health before it's a health issue right like everybody knows lift don't lift with your back <laughs> how many times have we learn that wear your PPE your gloves your mask your goggles right we all know that we don't talk about mental health we don't talk about how to prevent mental health injuries. We don't talk about documenting your mental health injuries. Um, we don't talk about how ridiculous it is that lots of us have seen people without their heads. I mean, that just isn't something that's supposed to happen, right? You, you, you're not supposed to know about that. And, you know, we can, we can say lift with your legs because you're going to have to lift a lot of heavy stuff. And, uh, and keep your mind sane because you're going to have to deal with a lot of heavy stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I think, I think, yeah, so to go back, if I was to say, what would I say to those guys? I would say the same thing. It will change you. But I would say to all the 
guys junior to me and uh, senior to those classes that it's your responsibility to sort of forward on the mental health. Uh, I went to a particularly terrible call a number of years ago, it would be 10 years ago. My captain was equally affected by it. And uh, it was a really shitty mess. And he got out of the truck and he says, uh, are you okay? Oh, I said, yeah, man, I'm okay. He says, me too. It was 10 years later before we realized we weren't okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I don't blame him for a minute, but he asked me, are you okay? And my answer was yes, because there wasn't a goddamn thing he could do to help me. Mm -hmm. He's not a trained in any level of mental health. Like he was my officer and you report to your officer, but they're not really trained. And we're working on that. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I, 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 I don't want to speak ill of my profession at all. They're working on it. The association's working on it. The city's working on it. The, we're getting there. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. Change is slow. Change, right? change is slow. And we've got to learn that, that it's a mentorship thing, right? Like, like, you don't want to be the old man that's just dismissed. There has to be a senior. When I first started, I was brand new, and there was a guy, uh, well, he ultimately became my captain, but I worked with him for much of my career. But when I was brand new, he was six years on. Hmm. He had me under his wing. Okay, this is what you're doing, buddy, right? Hmm. And it would have been nice then if, uh, you know, if I was, if I'm now, uh, or I mean, recently when I was working, if I met a, a recruit, I would say, hey, yeah, you know, keep an eye on your mental health, buddy. We'll catch up with you, mm -hmm. right? Now now we're saying that, but we weren't saying that then. So like I say, there's, there's definitely progress, right? I would hope and think that people coming into the profession are a little bit more mental health conscious just from society. Um, maybe maybe not now or certainly in generations to come with you know with Bell Let's Talk and people like you sharing their stories. So I guess, it, do you think it's a combination of the expectations like of, of recruits coming in as well as those veterans and the administrative layers prioritizing mental health and kind of that mentorship? Like is it- Oh, it's, a, it's an entire societal shift. Um, I look at my granddaughter's 14 or 15, forgive me. Uh, but I look at the things she's learning in school and you know, there's a lot of talk that these are bad things, but you look at the things they're learning in school about uh, feelings and, uh, and mental health and, and being different. And those things are working their way all the way up. There's no doubt in the fire department, it used to be if you could drive a truck and play hockey and you know, win in a punch up, you're going to get a job. Well, that's, that's old school by my standards, right? But by my standards, there's so much old school compared to the, the ones that are getting hired now. Mm. Uh, there's not the same bravado. There's not the same drinking. There's not the same <laughs> womanizing, for lack of a better word. It, you know, it is cleaning up its act. No, that's not fair to say cleaning up. It wasn't, we were never bad guys. Just but what evolving, I'm getting at is that, yeah. yeah, it's evolving into something where, where there is a little more sensitivity. There's a little more awareness. And I think that's true of, of mankind in general, mm -hmm. right? Like, uh, you know, it's not just about firefighters. It's about accountants and hockey players. And, you know, uh, there's all kinds of people that, you know what? Uh, I use the accountants, but I mean, it's, it's for all people, but, in these groups where they, where we suffer from a, a, a hero worship kind of thing, where no one likes to believe that there's anything going wrong, where uh, where we have a bravado that we have to maintain, be it cops, soldiers, uh, firefighters, paramedics, hockey players, football players, all those people that uh, you know the world look up to, and and you are one of those boys, and that's a pretty nice thing to be. There's a lot of progress in that. There's a lot of progress in that, in, in everything from wrestlers and boxers recognizing that they have brain damage, right? Like mm -hmm. we're just getting better as a society at taking care of each other. And I think that that's important. I think that it's important also for us to recognize that we need to care for each other. So my threshold for, uh, 
lack of a better word for grossness, is probably much higher than you. And uh, me sharing with you might not help, but me sharing with my truck mate, I should share with my truck mate, because I know his threshold is higher. And I know roughly when to ask, are you okay and when not to. And we need to take care of each other. If you got 10 strong guys in a room, no one's gonna be complaining about their back, mm -hmm. right? And no one's gonna think to ask that guy that's uh, you know, been shuffling paper his whole life is your back sore. We don't know each other. Mm -hmm. So inside of our realms, we have to take care of each other. We have to start talking. Hockey players need to start talking to each other like this happened to me. Uh, oh, mm -hmm. really? You know, I can help you with that because because we're close. We're we're commonality. Cops can share with cops. The firefighters can share with firefighters. We can't be tough amongst ourselves. Is sort of my point. Mm. Um, I get it that we were hired to, and societal value means that our bravado has to be there. It has to be, right? Uh, it's part of what allows you to do your job well. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Like you know. And I've said it in my defense, and I and you know it's probably not politically correct, and it's probably not accurate. But you know, when I was drinking and womanizing around, I would say like, you don't want your front door kicked down by some small little guy. You want a testosterone field monster like me. Mm -hmm. Well, there's some truth to that, mm -hmm. right? But we, as a as a group of of those testosterone field monsters or soldiers or skilled technicians in our craft, however you want to call it, we relate to each other. And we have to start sitting down and doing this, right? Where, you know, where someone that knows me can say, holy shit, I've never seen Jeff be so open. Well, you know, here I am, guys. I, uh, it's been a fucking long, long road to get here. Well, I appreciate you being here, sharing your story, and uh, especially with what you do and, um, you know, firefighter, first responder, we need to, we need people like you sharing their stories. Thank because, you. like, I, you know, you're 100% right about, you know, like these stereotypes and, um, you know, maybe the culture, the firefighting and other responders, first responders, <clears throat> that it needs to shift, you know, to open up these conversations. And that doesn't happen um, without people like you leading the way, <clears throat> right? Because you need to see, they need to see themselves in somebody and uh, people like you <clears throat> sharing your story are, are providing that. So. Thank you very much for sharing your story, and I really appreciate it. I very much appreciate the opportunity to, to get the word out. And and much more significantly, I appreciate what you guys did for me. And, uh, and it's only right that I give something back. That's sort of how it's always been for me. And, and uh, thank you very much for that. Thank you. Thank you.